On this podcast, we discuss medical diagnoses and procedures. All of the guests express their own opinions. You should always seek medical advice from a trained and credentialed professional when making decisions about your own health. Welcome to the Sleep Apnea Stories podcast. I'm Emma Cooksey, and I've been coping with sleep apnea since childhood. I didn't know anyone in my life with a sleep disorder, so I decided to start this podcast. I'm here to build community and provide a platform for people with sleep apnea to tell their stories. Together, we can shatter stereotypes and raise awareness. We'll be exploring all sorts of treatment options and lifestyle choices to help you live your best life with sleep apnea. This is Sleep Apnea Stories, and I'm so glad you're here. Hey there, it's Emma Cooksey here, and I'm your host. So I feel like you guys need a little bit of an update on um, some things I've been doing. I'd kind of mentioned in one of the episodes that I was looking at adding an oral appliance to my CPAP. So I've been a CPAP user for 16 years. Um, but last year, my sleep apnea definitely took a turn. And I think part, partly because of a weight gain I had um, when I started perimenopause, I went from moderate sleep apnea to severe sleep apnea. And I definitely noticed a difference. And my doctor um, went ahead and changed my CPAP pressure so that it went up um, just to make sure that it was treating you know, like all my events properly. So that was fine, but I definitely noticed that I wasn't sleeping as well and I was having much more, you know, disturbances, waking up more. I was getting more mask leaks, just like the increased pressure was just less comfortable to me. So I started reading some research articles about people who were combining um, CPAP therapy with oral appliance therapy. So remember when we're talking about oral appliances, I know it's very confusing because there's so many different, um, you know, oral appliances out there that do different things. But what we're talking about is mandibular advancement devices where you wear them every night and they um, hold your um, lower jaw slightly forward so that it takes the tongue and the soft tissue out of your airway and helps you to breathe better. So that's what we're talking about, just because I think sometimes people get confused. They think that it's the same as a night guard, which stops people from damaging their teeth from bruxism, or it's like, you know, one of the orthotics that people use to treat TMJ. Um, so that's not what we're talking about. We're talking about oral appliance therapy, also known as a mandibular advancement device. So it's worth saying, I think the biggest thing anybody looking to get an oral appliance should do is just spend time finding the best dentist in their area that does this. So I've talked before on the program about um, going to the website for the AADSM, which is aadsm.org, and that's the American Academy of Dental Sleep Medicine. And they have an area where you can find a provider and what you're looking for is either a member or better still a diplomate of the AADSM, which means that they've completed the highest level of training in this area. So I went to Dr. Krantz, who's here in Jacksonville, Florida, um, and this is all he does. And he works, you know, all the time with um, sleep doctors to get you know, like the diagnosis and they work back and forth and that's really what you want. Um, so you want somebody who does this a lot, right? Cause I mean, any dentist can make you one of these devices. Um, but I think with my experience with Dr. Krantz has been, you know, that he's super knowledgeable about this, right? So a couple of people had asked me which appliance I got and, and what I ended up getting fitted for was a Prosomnus Evo, E-V-O. Um, and it has space for my tongue and it's really comfortable because they use like digital scans and precision engineering so that it fits super well. So 
I would say that it's too early to say for sure because we haven't had the sleep test yet, right? So um, you, if you've listened to the podcast, you know that I'm always talking about, um, probably annoyingly always talking about, because I've mentioned it so often, um, that people should really have a follow-up sleep study after you get fit for an oral appliance and it's titrated um, because you can't really rely on just the fact that you stop snoring or you feel a bit better. You really need to have that follow-up sleep study to check that your oral appliance is treating your sleep apnea adequately, right? So we are we already know, like with me, that I'm already on CVAP. So <laughs> we know that my um, sleep apnea is being well treated, but we just want to look at like what effect um, it's having. But I can tell you subjectively that I feel a lot better. I have had a couple of weeks now with the appliance and I've noticed just waking up feeling rested, which I've never really felt before. Um, so this whole time, I know that aura rings aren't diagnostic tools, but they tend to, you know, give you some guide of what stage of sleep you're in. And so for years and years that I've been on CPAP by itself, it's shown on my aura ring data that I had like, you know, anywhere from zero to about eight minutes of deep sleep per night, <laughs> which is not ideal. Um, and so this last week I've been seeing, you know, an hour or 45 minutes or, you know, like a lot of significantly more deep sleep. So yeah, I'm interested to see what the sleep study shows and I'll share with you guys when we do that, which probably be quite soon. Um, the other thing to say that I've had going on, which has affected uh, my sleep, is yesterday I went and had um, a weird mole from the side of my face removed, and it, they reckon it's like a sort of cyst thing, um, but they're obviously you know, not taking any chances in case it's cancerous. So they're sending it away and everything, but it ended up being like a bit more, like a bit of a bigger incision than I, than I thought it was going to be. So it's a bit like, oh gosh, and the dressing is quite big. And so last night when I was trying to sleep with my, you know, oral appliance and my CPAP, it was like kind of pushing on where um, they just made the incision. So yeah, I didn't sleep very well last night, but I'm hoping that tonight will be better because the dressing will be smaller. But So that's a bit about what's happening with me combining CPAP with my oral appliance. So it's going well is mainly what I'd say. Um, and whenever I do that sleep study, I'm going to share with you guys what that says. Um, I always feel like a guinea pig because I just like to try everything out, right? <laughs> to see how I feel. So on to today's guest. So today I'm joined by Dr. Ana Luisa Vieira, um, who I connected with on Instagram a little while ago. I feel like I, I kept kind of posting about different things with questions and she would always, you know, answer everything and just seem to know so much about sleep medicine. And that I decided that it'd be great to have her on the podcast um, just to pick her brain a little bit. Um, originally, we connected because I posted something about the ResMed for her um, CPAP machine because I didn't realize that that actually has a different algorithm. It's not just that it looks more feminine because it's white with like butterflies or whatever that pattern is. Um, it's actually got differences in the machine and the way that it delivers therapy. So she kind of answered, you know, a whole thing about the, the algorithm being different. And I just thought I've got to get her on the podcast and pick her brain. So Dr. Ana Luisa Vieira is a respiratory and sleep medicine physician. She's double board certified and practicing at Hospital de Braga in Portugal. When she's not providing care to her patients, she enjoys exploring nature along with her husband and two children. So you can find um, Dr. Vieira on social media. She's pretty active on Instagram, Facebook, and LinkedIn. So I'm going to put links to those in the show notes. And please enjoy my conversation with Dr. Vieira. Um, Dr. Vieira, thank you so much for joining me. I really appreciate it. 
it's my pleasure to be here with you, Emma. Um, I'm a regular listener of your podcast. It is ex extremely important uh, for me as a sleep physician and a respiratory physician to listen to to patients' doubts and fears and uh, difficulties in this sleep apnea journey and path. Uh, it's extremely valuable for me to listen to you. So thank you. And thank you for being here to share my knowledge. Thank you so much for listening. I really appreciate it. I love it when doctors listen. It's like the ultimate compliment. Start off by telling people you're in Portugal. Do you want to explain where exactly you are in Portugal, what your work involves, where you work, that kind of thing. Yeah, so uh, I live in, I'm Portuguese, I live in Portugal, which is uh, um, an, a Western country in, in Europe. It's located between the Atlantic Ocean and Spain in the Western tip of the European continent. I work in Braga, which is the third biggest city in Portugal. And here I am a respiratory physician and a sleep physician also working in a public hospital. Hospital de Braga. Um, my practice is about chronic respiratory failure patients and also uh, sleep respiratory disturbances patients. And I also co run Sleep Lab here with the in lab PSG. So we first <laughs> connected on Instagram. I think I had done a post about um, so ResMed have a machine which is called, I think the AirSense, I think it was the AirSense 10 and they had a for her version of it. And I always mistakenly thought that it was just that they were trying to appeal more to women with a sort of white, um, you know, like aesthetically, like they were trying to make the regular machine look more appealing to women. So they just made it white and more feminine. But actually, that that post was saying that there was a different algorithm and it had been set up to address the needs of women specifically and some of the patterns they see more with women with sleep apnea. And I was just like, what? <laughs> like, I had never heard that before. And so you had responded that yes that, that you were familiar with that machine and so I wondered if you could just maybe I know it's such a huge topic we could talk about this for three hours but I just wonder in your clinic like in the hospital what kind of things are you aware of um the differences between how men tend to have sleep apnea and women like are, do you see differences there and what are those? And I know that we're at a very early stage in the research about this, but just to give listeners an idea of what kind of differences there might be. Yes, I, I remember when you posted that thing about the the, the auto set for her being so lovely and white and with all that with a female yeah. style, right? And then I answered, well, it's not just the, the design of it. It is really different. Yeah. And uh, in that time, you, you stated you were surprised because you didn't really know it had a different algorithm. And yes, you're right. Uh, it was back then with the AirSense uh, auto set for her, AirSense 10, I guess. Now, uh, ResMed has developed the AirSense 11 and um, with the same uh, positive airway pressure machine, they have these different modes, the, the CPAP mode, mm -hmm. the, the, the auto-adjusting PAP mode, and then the, the, the sub-feature with the for her that mode, which is uh, which has some different differences um, based on the female phenotype of obstructive sleep apnea, but not just female. Um, I guess they they evolved this PAP device and incorporated the for her in the same device because sometimes there may be also men that have these have this kind of features that um, will answer uh, better to this uh, to this uh, treatment algorithm. So it's all about one size does not fit all. We have to to know the kind of patient we have and the kind of sleep study uh, the patient has, and then um, adapt the treatment. So 
what you told me about uh, female uh, obstructive sleep apnea is really um, a complex topic. Well, we know obstructive sleep apnea is the most common form of sleep disorders breathing. Uh, the prevalence is increasing. And historically, obstructive sleep apnea has been considered like a, a male disease, yep. as apparently males are more often affected than women. However, research challenges that recent research challenges those facts. And we now know and I, that and I, women... Sorry to have... interrupt you, but I, I also think that the more women I talk to with sleep apnea, the more that, um, you know, I think we're realizing that all the research started with men because it was very much seen as a, a male um, issue. Um, but I think maybe... You know, there have been women dealing with this as well, but we just have not been aware because, you know, nobody's been looking at them. Yeah, uh, for sure. We now know that um, also it's just as, impo as important for women as it is for men. Uh, but diagnosing obstructive sleep apnea in women can be challenging. And it can be because of several factors. Well, on the one hand, women often present with some uh, more generalized daytime symptoms and not only those uh, witness apneas and, um, and extensive snoring through, uh, through the night. They might have insomnia, they might have restless legs, they might complain of depression, palpitations, for example, rather than those symptoms such as snoring or apnea. Um, uh, besides that, women may also under-report their symptoms, and we as women, most of the time, we feel tired because of all our uh, social and cultural roles, so um, it's kind of tricky when to know it's too much tired or when this tiredness is, uh, is abnormal, right? Our threshold for feeling sleepy or for feeling tired is different, uh, and besides of that, women tend to go to regular appointments alone. So their, their best partners won't be there in the consultation to say, well, my wife snores and I listen to her snore during the night and she, well, she stops breathing during the night. I know this bad. Um, so this is, these are the main symptoms and the challenges that um, women with sleep apnea uh, face. Uh, regarding to symptoms, but uh, women also have different uh, a different type of sleep apnea and uh, sleep studies that women uh, uh, make are different uh, and the sleep study findings. And I can I can talk to you, for example, we know that women have a lower apnea hypopnea index uh, mm -hmm. versus versus men. However, and uh, we also know that the uh, apneas in women are more focused, are more centered on REM, on REM sleep, on this uh, stage, uh, on this uh, stage of, of sleep. And men, for uh, for instance, they suffer more from supine related obstructive uh, sleep apnea, so, so positional, the positional also. Yeah. yeah. Besides that, women also have a shorter apnea duration and less severe oxygen saturations. This is a problem because uh, think with me, um, we know women uh, tend to, 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 to perform short apneas and less apneas hypopneas. Well, and in women, we might have symptoms with a lower AHI, but that's because the home sleep studies will measure apneas and hypopneas. But in women, we know there are there is this concept of respiratory effort, and we have in, in sleep medicine we have the, the the concept that we call respiratory effort related arousals, mm -hmm. which uh, is a feature is a feature is a respiratory event during the night. It does not meet the criteria for apnea or hypopnea, but it is still a, a respiratory event. There's, there are there is respiratory effort and there is a flattening of the of, of the curve. Yeah, and if a person is in, you know, a deeper sleep level and they have one of those events, it's going to bring them out of you know, it's going to like either yeah, wake they, them up. Or, they will, or... they will have, 
or not wake them up in the sense that they 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 understand they they woke right, up they're not aware. but they have this arousal yeah yeah uh, yeah a change in the EEG frequency uh, which meets the criteria for an arousal so they don't they will not have high AHI but they will have these events that will will make the score for the respiratory disturbance in it, but we we only get to know this better with an in lab sleep study or a level two sleep study. Those PSGs done at home with the EAG uh, monitoring. So yes. this is another challenge for for. Um, for women. Besides that, there are other differences between women and men uh, in sleep apnea. Anatomy, for example, the anatomy of the upper airways, uh, uh, the upper airway anatomy is different. Uh, obesity also plays here a role, and we also have a difference in the distribution of fat. Uh, for example, whether it's in the, the posterior tongue or, or no. And then we have the hormonal issues about menopause and uh, what we believe is the loss of the hormonal protective effect. Yes. And, and also in pregnancy, where we have increased rates of obstructive sleep apnea that go uh, completely underdiagnosed with um, risks for the, the woman, the pregnant woman, and for the baby. And we really know uh, that from, from research, the risks of undiagnosed, untreated sleep apnea in pregnancy and outcomes for the, for, for the child. Mm -hmm. So I think obstructive sleep apnea uh, has consequences in women, has severe uh, consequences is associated with our other uh, comorbidities yeah. and with um, also with uh, mortality. So how? But in... women are different, and they have to be looked as different uh, yeah. with unique symptoms and unique specificities. Mm -hmm. And that was the rationale for developing the a treatment, uh, uh, a specific. Uh, treatment and a specific mm -hmm. algorithm for positive airway pressure. And so how do you approach like um, treatment for women? Like, is it is it using things like that, you know, particular algorithm for women? Or is there anything specific that you do in treating women versus men? Yeah, so uh, the, the the main the main treatments are more more like the same, right? Positive airway pressure, mandibular advancement mm -hmm. devices, uh, positional therapy. Uh, the mainstay of treatments are more or less the same. However, regarding these positive airway pressure devices, there are really um, uh, a few differences. That uh, if people, if sleep physicians are aware of these differences, they can adjust the treatment. So if we have uh, an obstructive sleep apnea woman with these features in the sleep study that I mentioned, mm -hmm. well, maybe we have to look for an algorithm that will look not, not for the apneas or the hypopneas, but for the flow limitation. Yes. And besides the flow limitation, um, the algorithm has to have this uh, quick response time, because we know that events in women are shorter than events in men. Yep. So the algorithm has to, to, to answer, to, to sense what is happening in, in that array more quickly and to answer more quickly also. And mm. that's, that's the rationale behind this, this for her algorithm from, from ResMed. It has an increased sensitivity to flow limitation mm. and also it has an, an adaptive minimum pressure setting. So this means that the algorithm adjusts the minimum expiratory um, pressure based on the patient's breathing patterns and the presence of flow limitations. So it tailors the pressure to individual needs. Also, it has the this response game I was talking you about. It's it's kind of optimized. So uh, the the positive airway pressure device responds more quickly to the change in airflow. Uh, so. It seems like this this algorithm is more responsive to 
clothes limitation rather than to apneas, which is usual in the in the in the other devices. Yeah. And comparison studies have demonstrated that uh, results are equivalent, and the pressures the pressures used during the night are lower than it hold. It, it would have been with the, the regular mm. uh, the regular algorithm. So by using lower pressures, patients get more comf- more comfort, and treatment mm. is enhanced, and uh, and there is more adherence to treatment. So I I kind of like this female algorithm, but I don't really think it's just female because yeah. there are also men with with this phenotype of upper yeah. airway resistance syndrome. Which mm-hmm. is based on rarest and not on not only on apnea and hypopnea, uh, because sleep apnea has different faces, right? We have to know yeah. it um, and to to adjust the treatment to the patient we have in front of us. I'm just I'm just uh, quiet because I'm like astonished. Like I like I didn't know <laughs> any of this. I'm totally like learning. It's great. Um, so for people who are tuning in, who are like, what are they talking about? Could you just explain <laughs> a little bit about, just take it back to the basic level of what, how, how an apnea is defined, right? So how long of a pause and, and all of that, how a hypopnea is defined, and then a little bit more about this um, respiratory effort. So... These respiratory sleep dis- uh, disturbances are based on uh, some features from the sleep studies that might be at home or might be at in lab in the hospital. Mm-hmm. And we have several respiratory indices we are going to use. Uh, when a patient is performing a sleep study, the patient has something in the nose that will measure the pressure. Yep. Um, and the like flow, cannula, flow that think, goes around a cannula, that's yep. it, a cannula in, in the nose that will measure uh, the, the, the flow of the air in and out. And they will have two bands, a thoracic uh, belt and an abdominal bed, belt that will measure if we are breathing uh, or not, or, or if we stop um, uh, this, this thoracoabdominal movements. And plus, we have an oximeter in the finger that will check the the, the, the O2 saturation during the night. And based on these four things, we'll score an an hypopnea or um, a rara, but in case of respiratory effort-related arousal, we, we have to have EEG monitoring to check so electrodes the on your head yeah, electrodes on our head and they will they will monitor a change in the EEG frequencies during the okay. night to see if the person has an arousal or an awakening even though the person is not aware that he or she awakes but there is an, a change in the EEG frequency during the night so for the most conventional home sleep studies, we will measure apnea and hypopnea. Uh, then uh, this, this event might, might be obstructive or central, but regarding the obstructive event, we have uh, an obstructive apnea when we have a complete cessation of flow for more than 10 seconds. Uh, this is a, an apnea. Well, we stop breathing for more than 10 seconds. And hypopnea, we don't stop breathing for 10 seconds, but we have a reduction in the airflow during this period with or not associated desaturation. That's why we need the, the, the oximeter also, in the finger. This episode of Sleep Apnea Stories is sponsored by BetterHelp. How well we look after our mind really affects how we experience life. Therapy has been so helpful to me since I was diagnosed with sleep apnea. It helped me to work through the feelings I had about going undiagnosed for so long. It also helped me to adjust to living with a chronic condition. One of the best things about starting my podcast has been realizing I'm not alone in coping with mental health issues along with sleep apnea. 
Speaking to a professional therapist has helped me enormously to manage my anxiety and depression. BetterHelp is online therapy and it's much more affordable than in-person sessions. You can get matched with a therapist in under 48 hours. Our listeners get 10% off their first month at betterhelp.com slash Emma. That's betterhelp.com slash Emma. Obstructive apnea, obstructive apnea, and then the respiratory effort, which does not uh, accomplish the criteria for apnea or apopnea, but there is still flow limitation. Okay. There are not desaturations. There, the, the the partial flow limitation does not meet the criteria for apopnea, but it is associated with an arousal, and the person is sleeping in a deep sleep stage, for example or in the REM stage or in N2 stage and it ha- there is an abrupt change in EEG frequency and uh, this leads to, to the feeling of non-repairing sleep when yeah. the person wakes up. That was an extremely good uh, description. Thank you. It's because I think sometimes people have listened to a lot of podcast episodes and they're right there with us and then other times people have only just found out they have sleep apnea and then they're like, what are they talking about? And I just want to make sure everybody is on the same page. So one of the things I did want to ask you about is just the differences in how things are dealt with in Portugal versus, I mean, my personal experience is with growing up in the UK and having the National Health Service and then being in America for the last 16 years and the health system here and I'm wondering if you can explain to people listening a little bit about the Portuguese system and whether um, people are paying for their health care how that looks like sure uh, well in Portugal we also have the national health health service so we, we have public hospitals. We also have private hospitals and private medical practice based mainly on insurances. Yep. But the public health hospitals, uh, they work with national health services and uh, they are conditionally uh, free. Yep. Regarding sleep apnea services, well, patients, uh, patients, come to the consultations, they perform the sleep study, they get diagnosis of obstructive sleep apnea. And then uh, we as sleep physicians, as respiratory physicians, prescribe the treatment. In Portugal, positive airway pressure therapies are completely reimbursed by the state. So National Health Service has like a, a contract with different home care providers companies. Mm-hmm. And those home care providers kind of rent the devices to the patient at zero cost. The patient does, doesn't pay anything. It's the National Health Service that co-pays to the these home care um, companies. That's the, the contract, which is really nice for the patients because we have access to all kinds of PAP machines we have access to all kinds of interfaces and masks without the patient really have to buy it from a retail store or something like that. The main ventilator companies sell to these home care providers and then the home care providers deliver the therapies and the equipments in patients' home. Besides doing this, they support all the maintenance of the equipments and the interfaces and all the telemonitoring and the, and the communication and replacing and everything. The supplies yep. and the, tel- uh, the, the telemonitoring platforms to contact and communicate with us in the hospital with the respiratory or the, the sleep physician. So I think it works really well. We don't really have constraints uh, rega- regarding it sounds equipment great. Or, or devices. <laughs> um, That's this main. There is there is a, a here some two issues, yeah. which is well, 
this is free, but it ha we have some norms, some rules for prescribing. Yeah. So we have national guidelines that recommend which which kind of thing we must prescribe, how to prescribe, yeah. and we have like an audit about that. We have to comply with those rules, yeah. and the reimbursement is complete, is is total, but it does not take into account if the patient is an adherent or not to the therapy. So it's Got a it ongoing debate yeah if it's um if it should if it should have here some adjustments yeah or, or no but uh, in the end i think it works really well and this works for sleep apnea but also for chronic respiratory failure devices there yeah. are some things that are not reimbursed uh, for example mandibular advancement devices are that not was going to be my next question positional <laughs> therapy yeah, it's it's. I don't know if it will be reimbursed someday, but yeah. nowadays it is not. Positional therapy is also not reimbursed, and the the implants, the zyproglossal nerve stimulation, yes. is not reimbursed yet, and okay. it is really expensive here. Yes. So, so these if are somebody, some we have. So if somebody in Portugal wanted to try a mandibular advancement appliance like you do have them available but they would have to pay yeah. a dentist privately to do that and then yeah. similarly with the yeah. inspire implant they would find a surgeon and privately go and have that treatment okay got it yes uh, that is the, the current situation there are some exceptions there are some hospitals uh, that manage to include these uh, mandibular advancement devices in their budget but it's for uh, extremely selected patients. But yeah. this is a work in progress. And oh, yeah. We'll I mean, have I, think, I don't, I don't think the, there's anybody area. that pretends like they've sorted, like they've figured it all out. Like, I feel like everything's a work in progress. And especially as new treatments come, like, you know, there's just a period where, you know, uh, they're trying to figure, usually I feel like things come in America quite quickly just because, all of us pay so much for healthcare um, that we're kind of almost like yeah. conditioned to be okay with paying for things, you know? Whereas I think like in Europe, like where there um, is free healthcare, I mean, I think understandably people, you know, don't necessarily want to pay on top of, you know, whatever like uh, treatment they're getting. So that was super helpful. Thank you for explaining that. Um, and so do you have similar challenges in, I think CPAP can be, or PAP therapy can be a very uh, challenging um, therapy for a lot of people to get used to, especially in the beginning. Um, do you have like certain patients where they just are having problems or they don't want to use it or any of those things is that like a universal issue um because i know in america that seems to be quite a a challenge for a lot of doctors yes it, it is here also because well we i understand because we can solve the respiratory um events with the pap therapy but we might worsen the sleep symptoms so it's like uh, my 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 approach is like to solve the respiratory events i don't want the patient to have apneas or hypopneas yes. or rarest but i want the patient to sleep well and I want he, uh, the patient to sleep well under CPAP because CPAP is important for the respiratory yes. episodes. And I want them solved because of all the, the problems with, related to that. Yes. But I also, want the, I will also want the patient to sleep with it. So uh, this, this thing of respiratory sleep medicine is also sleep medicine. So I don't really want just to prescribe the CPAP and to solve the respiratory issues without solving the sleep issues that's uh, okay that's so sometimes that previous you, Dr. Vieira that makes you very unusual among among sleep doctors we have um, obstructive sleep apnea symptoms um, and uh, at the same time we might have other sleep symptoms yes. related to other sleep pathologies yes. okay and then we might have a person that also only has obstructive sleep apnea and starts 
positive airway pressure therapy. And then uh, some sleep symptoms emerged that didn't exist before. Right. And we need to treat these, these two kinds of patients. Uh, the, the sleep apnea patient with other sleep things like insomnia, yeah. for example, you have the example of camisa, which is yes. which is a, a problematic thing, and also sleep apnea patients that started pap therapy and have these sleep symptoms to solve under pap therapy, yeah. and that's why. Uh, uh, we as sleep physicians have to uh, really be aware of all these these things and to have a, a, a deep knowledge about respiratory sleep medicine but also about sleep medicine because they are connected and we yes. cannot disconnect them yes i think sometimes there's a, a sort of disconnect just i mean in my own experience but also talking to a lot of other people where understandably right the the um sleep doctor is looking at the machine's data and saying, well, this is great because your AHI has reduced right down and, and your, you know, apneas and hypopneas are well treated. And I think that there's this disconnect because the patient really wants, you know, restorative sleep. They want to wake up and feel well rested. And so I think sometimes, I mean, I kind of feel for sleep doctors, right? Because they they're kind of like well we've done really well <laughs> like you know we're treating that part but I think that this overall sleep health and especially people that have insomnia at the same time or other things going on it can be a really challenging puzzle <laughs> yeah insomnia restless legs leg movements during yeah. the night that were not that people were not aware or just sleep fragmentation because of because of sleep yeah. and we need to understand how that works during the sleep and what we can do to find to fine-tune these settings or to find adjust yeah. these things in order for the patient to do the path therapy and solve the hi but also to sleep well right yeah oh yeah so the other thing we might not have a lot of time to get to everything I want to ask you but I did want to just ask a little bit about the thing I get asked most by my um, followers and my listeners is to do more um, on central sleep apnea and complex or mixed sleep apnea as well and so I think that we talk a lot about obstructive sleep apnea because it's more common and um, so I guess I just kind of wanted to ask a little bit about any patients that you have with central sleep apnea and, and the treatment options available for that. Okay, so let's move, Huge let's topic, move to another right? topic, right? <laughs> yeah, huge topic. So the international classification of sleep disorder disorders has uh, these uh, different classifications of central sleep apnea and these classifications vary this is international classification but then it varies from article to article and from statement to statement so the international classification states central sleep apnea which time soaks breathing or periodic breathing this term has been re replaced by periodic breathing yes. central sleep apnea due to a medical disorder without periodic breathing the shine soaks breathing yes. central sleep apnea due to high altitude for people that go high in the mountains mm -hmm. central sleep apnea due to medication for example primary central sleep apnea which is rare and then these two things of childhood, primary central sleep apnea of infancy and of prematurity. And then this I don't taxa, know anything about what those. Taxa means. <laughs> yeah, what does TEXA mean? Treatment, yeah. emergent central sleep apnea, or yeah. the term complex sleep apnea that was um, has been introduced for this this uh, this thing this treatment diversion central sleep apnea there are some uh, terms that relate to the same thing and i i think it is important for us to 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 use uh, uniform terms and diagnosis yes. because otherwise it's it is really very very, very complicated but, uh, very quickly <laughs> mm -hmm. 
and and in a quick way uh, yeah. my my most favorite article and recommendation on central sleep apnea is the european respiratory society task force from 2017 it okay. was written by professor winfried randerat uh, and other colleagues and it's really simple to read it has some statements and it uh, i can link to that in the show different... notes as well Yes, and it delves into the different kinds of central sleep apnea and uh, talks about the, the relationship between central sleep apnea, heart failure, neurological disorders, uh, emergent to treatment and the several treatment uh, modalities. Okay. It is really, really nice to read. About central sleep apnea, what is the main things I see in my daily practice? We have central sleep apnea related to heart failure. It is a, it is a, an important topic. We have yes. central sleep apnea related to medication, namely opioids. Opioids, yeah. Opioids for opioids for chronic pain or yeah. methadone for drug addicts, and it mm -hmm. is common. And we have we also have the TEXA, the treatment immersion central sleep apnea, which is, and I'll talk about that later, it's a phenomenon of obstructive sleep apnea. And we have to have this in mind. So yeah. this all started as obstructive and then for some, some reasons I'll talk later, uh, it will go to central sleep apnea, but it, it was primary, primarily uh, a phenomenon of obstructive sleep apnea. So it is kind of different from the other yes. central sleep apnea diagnosis. So regarding the heart failure thing, this is important because of the treatments and some clinical trials that that um, we, we, ex we, we get got chance to, to learn. So we know that central sleep apnea is a prevalent comorbidity in heart failure patients, which might have a preserved cardiac function, uh, uh, a reduced cardiac function, or a, a moderate, a mid-range, mid-range uh, ejection fraction. That's what the, the, the echocardiogram showed when a patient performs this, this exam. Um, we know that this central sleep apnea in heart failure patients is really heterogeneous. And some studies found that there are different phenotypes in heart failure patients with okay. obstructive sleep apnea or with central sleep apnea. And the response to treatment and the prognosis of these patients is different. I'll, I'll okay. try to talk about that in a way that, that people can um, understand. Uh, it is important to mention that both obstructive sleep apnea and central sleep apnea most of the time go uh, under-recognized in heart failure patients, and it has huge consequences. It has increased hospitalization rates, um, and it has um, increased mortality also. Um, we, have, we had in 2015 this trial uh, called SURF-HF, uh, mm -hmm. Before this year, uh, heart failure patients with central sleep apnea, uh, one of the main treatments besides medical treatment optimization was positive airway pressure that could be with CPAP or bilevel PAP or servo ventilation, which is yeah. a different kind of ventilation, so a different algorithm. ASV, that's mm -hmm. right. Um, and this trial, SURF HF, in 2015, showed that uh, patients with heart failure and a reduced ejection fraction under ASV were having higher mortality rates. Yes. And this clinical trial was interrupted because of that finding. Yes. But there are here some, uh, some, uh, some details we need to, to explore. Uh, on one hand, there are two modalities of ASV. Well, there is the modality of ASV based on minute ventilation, and there is the modality of ASV based on peak flow. And okay. both modalities have different windows, times for the adjustments. And the third HF was performed with the the minute ventilation algorithm, and it had a pressure support that was not zero. So it had a minimum pressure support beside the, the expiratory pressure. Uh, because of the results from search HF, this kind of device is no longer used. Uh, uh, after the, the trial, it was in intra it was 
uh, abolished. So they're no longer now, using ASV no. machines for patients that have, so it's mainly heart failure patients? And ASV machines have two treatment modalities. Mm -hmm. The treatment model or the treatment algorithm based on the peak flow has mm -hmm. these negative effects based on HF. Those that kind of machine is no okay. longer used. We have we have newer machines that kind of um, surpass these limitations okay. of the clinical trial. And then and then we have several clinical trials from this 2015, like Advent HF, that was a nice clinical yes. trial, but was also pre prematurely interrupted because of Philips recall and because yeah. of pandemic, because the device was from Philips. But um, its main findings seem seemed nice. And we also have the LACE trial uh, that was for heart failure patients under ASV. And we, with that LACE trial, we understood that there are several phenotypes for heart failure okay. patients. And the impact on prognosis and the impact on mortality is determined by phenotypes and not by the use of servo ventilation. Okay. So nowadays for heart failure patients with central sleep apnea, we have several treatments, medical treatment, and this kind of patients are extremely sensitive to, to optimized medical treatment. And we have newer drugs for heart failure. And we also have PAP therapy, CPAP, and also ventilation if events, if respiratory events are not solved under, okay. under CPAP. Yeah. So nowadays, uh, there only, are options. Only, only heart failure patients with, yes, there are options. And only heart failure patients with extremely reduced ejection fraction, uh, those are the patients we tend to get more cautious about the, servo, the ASV prescription. But in the other patients, we now have clear evidence that is not um, as deleterious as it looked in the SERF-HF trial in 2010. So and it's regarding uh, sleep apnea and respiratory sleep disturbances. Um, I think it is important to, to find a doctor that really understands the, the pathophysiology of things, yes. of sleep and also of breathing and the, the interconnection of breathing, ventilation and uh, airway anatomy. Mm -hmm. And so because think, we breathe based on our lungs, right, but also based on our brain. Mm -hmm. So I think I had kind of asked you and I don't think it is available there. But one of the things I get asked by Americans here is there is a phrenic nerve stimulator. I think it's called I want to say it's called Remedy by Zol it Itamar. Like, is that mm -hmm. something mm -hmm. that's available yeah. privately in Portugal or it's just not available. I don't know. Mm, for now, we, for now we don't have it available. Yeah. I know it, uh, but for now we, we still. I was talking about the other, the other things from central sleep apnea. So about yes. the the medication, mm -hmm. medication central sleep apnea. Well, it central sleep events can be influenced by medication use. Uh, we know that uh, the, cent the central apnea index, apnea and hypopnea index, is related to, for example, the use of methadone, the use of yes. opioids, and benzodiazepine. Benzo, uh, mm -hmm. So it is frequently for us to see in chronic addicts or in chronic pain, uh, people who use this, this medication for chronic pain ma uh, management. So um, regarding treatment, we have um, several kinds of treatment. We might have PAP therapies, uh, modalities, whether CPAP or uh, ASP. And we, we might also use uh, acetazolamide, which is a, a drug, a drug used to stimulate breathing. And it's also used in um, central sleep apnea related to, to drugs. About the text, which is the yes. treatment emergence in central sleep apnea, also named complex sleep apnea. As I stated previously, it's a a phenomenon of obstructive sleep apnea and we have different uh, different uh, definitions according to um, to different articles um, 
based on the international classification of sleep disorders, I spoke uh, previously, well, treatment emergent central sleep apnea is defined as having um, in, the, in, the, in the sleep exam diagnosis, um, people have more than five obstructive, uh, obstructive events or predominantly obstructive events. Then people uh, start uh, on CPAP or on PAP treatment and the obstructive events are solved uh, based on the report uh, and uh, several events emerge or perceive. And mm -hmm. this is the, 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 the tricky uh, the tricky part. And they persist for a central index of more than five per hour and more than 50% central events. And this thing is not better explained by any other uh, explanation or, or central sleep apnea disorder. So this is the criteria uh, from the um, international classification of, uh, of sleep disorders. However, um, several articles um, including the, the, the ERS task force from 2017, use different kinds of terms. Um, they use the term treatment emergent, mm -hmm. treatment persistent, and treatment resistant. Mm. And uh, we, what we know now is that there are some phenotypes of people, namely heart failure patients or people that are using this kind of medication that might predispose to central apneas, yeah. that in the initial sleep study, study, they might have obstructive sleep apneas, but also central sleep apnea, but in a lesser degree. It's predominantly obstructive. The ERS task force uh, clearly states that we can um, diagnose this thing called coexistence of OSA and central sleep apnea. Yeah. So we have this phenotype of people that already have some kind of central events, and then we treat the obstructive events because they are related to the airway, and the central events persist because they are not related to the airway, they are related to the respiratory drive brain. of the patient, yep. the, the brain, the brain, and the brain's drive for us to breathe. Mm -hmm. And these kind of patients have kind of a, an unstable breathing mm -hmm. control in the brain. So, so we have these phenotypes. Okay, carry on. <laughs> I have so many have, questions, but keep going. <laughs> yeah, it's okay. We also have the, the transient phenotype in which we know that obstructive sleep apnea starts PAP treatment and they have this central event that probably is related to this adaptation of the brain to treat the obstructive events. And we know that this is transient. This will solve under time under PAP therapy. And yep. the main treatment here is wait and see if the patient is not really symptomatic. And then we have the treatment resistant central sleep apnea, which are the events that don't resolve, don't solve under PAP therapy, under continued PAP therapy and keep there. And for these kind of patients, with are, which are the exception, for these kind of patients, we might prescribe them on ASV, for example, uh, in order for us to treat the, the central events. So people doing home tests sometimes get diagnosed with obstructive sleep apnea and they don't have an in-lab study. So they start on CPAP or whatever, just having had the home test. And how does that patient know if they could have, um, you know, treatment emergent central apneas? Is it just about that? Would it show on their machine that they would have a higher AHI or do they just not feel better? Like, how should they know that they need to go to a doctor and talk more about that? Yeah, well, the um, home sleep study uh, make the, the difference between obstructive events and central events. Right. So uh, in the beginning of the diagnosis, we kind of get the, this portrait. So you should know of, that of the part. patient. Okay. Yeah. We can we we have to know the the portrait of the patient in the beginning, yes. and then we'll get to see what happens under PAP treatment. 
So app devices, they have this kind of report, automated report, and they kind of develop this residual AHI and it divides in obstructive and in central uh, apneas or hypopneas. But this is the software that comes from the device. So if we have any doubts, the report might state that might state that there is an elevated residual AHI that we need to to, cons- to be concerned about, but this is a, a derivative that comes from the software pro- from the PAP device. So we have to rely on it, but not a hundred percent rely on it. So yeah. if the patient has symptoms or if the machine the report states there is an elevated AHI, I think we we, we have to check what it is, if the machine is right and that, that's correct, or if there's there's here some kind of misunderstanding yeah. or misinterpretation of, of software. So we might reperform a flip study under PAP and try to understand what is happening and what the patient is complaining about, if he's complaining or not. Yeah. It's, it's very, it can be super complicated to pick this whole thing apart. I mean, for doctors as well as yeah. for patients. Um, so listen, I could talk to you for four hours, but we're going to have to wrap up for today, but I think I'll probably need to have you come back on because you're just a wealth of knowledge. Um, so thank Mm -hmm. you so much for joining me. Is there anything else you wanted to share about where people can find you? Uh, yes, I'd like to thank you, Emma, for the invitation. For me, it's, it's a really pleasure to be here. Your episodes. Uh, uh, helped me uh, several times uh, when you talk with with patients and the, listening to your episodes helped me to uh, to really keep on track and keep centered on patients' outcomes and helping them to to sleep better, to breathe better, and to live better. So thank you for you and for uh, for your project. It's a pleasure for me to be here and to contribute with my experience with my knowledge to people that are listening to us uh, well people can find me in social media network and all that but mainly in portuguese but i'm fluent in english so thanks so much for listening i love hearing from you If you'd like to be featured in an upcoming episode, please email me at sleepapneastories at gmail.com. That's also the place to get in touch if you just want to say hi or ask a question. Alternatively, you can always reach me on Instagram. My handle there is at sleepapneastories. If you're enjoying the podcast, please subscribe, rate, and review wherever you listen. This really helps a wider audience to find the episodes and I really appreciate it.